Okay, in this lecture we're going to cover fluid, electrolyte, and acid-base balance. The content in this lecture is going to kind of set the stage for some of the processes that will occur throughout the semester in various systems or other foundational processes that we'll talk about, such as next time when we talk about inflammation. So let's talk about fluids first. Now there's a different percentage um, or relative quantity of water or fluid depending on the population. On average, um, about 60% of an adult's body weight is fluid or water. It's a higher percentage in infants. And in general, females have less than males. And this is partly because women have a higher percent fat relative to their other body tissues. Um, those who are obese have less fluid percentage-wise, and those who are elderly have less fluid percentage-wise. Now, if you combine a couple of these populations, for example, older women, they have a significantly different percent body fluid compared to other um, kinds of tissue, and that's down to only about 45%. So there are a couple of these populations that are going to be more adversely affected by a fluid or electrolyte imbalance. For example, if someone who is older or an infant um, has a fluid or electrolyte imbalance, they are going to have a harder time adjusting, for example. Um, older women in particular are going to have some of the the most difficult times in adjusting to changes in fluids and electrolytes. Now there are a couple terms that I'm going to use to describe some of the other parts of this lecture, so it's good to all be on the same page. So if you see the term intracellular, this would be the fluid that is inside of the cell itself. Extracellular fluid is made up of several different types or locations. It is abbreviated ECF. Now the extracellular fluid could be intravascular, and an example of that is plasma, so that is fluid within the vessels. There is interstitial fluid, or ISF, and interstitial fluid is the fluid between the cells in your tissues. Cerebrospinal fluid is a type of fluid in and of itself, and then there are other transcellular fluids. This is, for example, things like synovial fluid, fluid that um, resides in a space in between types of tissue, like pericardial fluid. And this also is other types of secretions that might be present um, in your body. And then we control the movement of fluids by several different types of processes that I think we should reflect on before we move forward into the types of imbalances that are present. Um, one of the biggest things is our thirst mechanism that's controlled by the hypothalamus. Hopefully that sounds sort of familiar from your anatomy and physiology courses. And the hypothalamus uses osmoreceptors. So here in a little bit, we're going to talk about a type of pressure in the tissues called osmotic pressure. And so that's going to be an important part of detecting fluid balance and electrolytes throughout your body. Then there are a couple hormones that are really important. ADH is anti diuretic hormone. And we'll eventually talk more about that when we get into the endocrine lecture, but just to sort of introduce it here, what this does 
is it promotes water reabsorption in the kidneys. So in endocrine, um, we're going to end up talking about a condition called diabetes insipidus, which is where you produce excessive amounts of urine, similar to what you do in diabetes mellitus, but here it's not because of excess glucose, it's because you don't have enough anti-diuretic hormone. As its name implies, a diuretic is normally something that makes you urinate a lot. So if this um, hormone is an anti-diuretic, it's going to help you retain water, so water reabsorption in the kidneys. Now another hormone also works on the kidneys, and that's aldosterone. Aldosterone is part of the RAA system, which will come up several times in this course. That's the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. It's a big part of um, blood pressure and fluid regulation, and we'll talk more about that later on this semester. But that's renin-angiotensin-aldosterone. So the last part of that, which is aldosterone, is part of how your kidneys reabsorb sodium. And something that will come up throughout the semester is that there is a close relationship between the amount of sodium and the amount of water that's present in any, any single tissue. So when water is reabsorbed in the kidneys, water just tends to naturally follow as part of osmosis to try to sort of dilute out any sodium ions that are present. So water tends to follow where sodium goes. Now there's another um, protein that is secreted by myocardial cells called atrial natriuretic peptide, or ANP for short. This is made by myocardial cells in the atrium, and it functions to inhibit some of these other things we've just talked about, for example, ADH and renin. And by doing that, it will lower blood pressure by causing fluid loss. So think about this. If we talked about how antidiuretic hormone causes you to reabsorb water, then if we inhibit that, we're going to urinate more water out. Okay, so this is another way that your body helps to um, control the fluids. One of the other um, parts that, of the kidney that this has an effect on is the glomerular filtration rate. And don't worry too much about understanding that abbreviation. That's gonna be something we'll come back to when we talk about the kidney because the glomerulus is part of the renal system where the filtration actually occurs. And so the ANP actually will increase the filtration process there at the glomerulus in the kidneys. Now, those are some things that are part of the fluid control, but there's a couple other terms that I want to use here to describe how fluid moves based on pressure. So hydrostatic pressure is basically the same idea as blood pressure. It is truly based on mechanical pressure. 
um, for volume, for example, as opposed to something that has osmotic, or another term you'll see in the textbook is colloid. Sorry, my pen is a little bit off here. Colloid oncotic pressure. This is something that has more to do with the quantity of proteins or solutes that are present in a solution. When you have elevated hydrostatic pressure, it will push fluid out. When you have elevated osmotic pressure, it will pull fluid toward itself. So for example, if you think about the arterial and the venous side of the capillary system, remember they're connected. You have the arterial side and then the venous side. Now as blood is flowing through the arteries, on this side you have a much higher hydrostatic pressure and that is going to push fluid out into the tissues. When you get over to the venous side of the capillary bed, that hydrostatic pressure will be much lower so that here we actually have a higher osmotic or oncotic pressure that will pull fluid back in. And this should make sense to you because as we're talking about the way that capillaries work, when you get to the tissues on the arterial side, this is exactly what you want to happen. You want fluid to move out so that oxygen, glucose, and you know any things, proteins, things that are necessary to supply the cells are going to go out. But on the venous side, you want things to go back in that you don't need anymore, like carbon dioxide and wastes. So hopefully that makes sense to you. This is an overall balance of pressures. And let me give you here a much prettier image than my drawing. So here, if this is a capillary on the arterial side, and this is the interstitial fluid, you're going to have here in the intravenous fluid or intravascular fluid, a hydrostatic pressure, let's say for example, around 30 millimeters of mercury. This is a lot higher than the hydrostatic pressure in the interstitial fluid, which is only about two millimeters of mercury. So naturally you are going to get movement of water and solutes from blood, which has a higher pressure out into the interstitial space, which has a lower pressure. So you're going to have in general a movement across. Now, also as part of this, you're going to have just a general diffusion of solutes that are going to naturally want to move from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. So this is also how you end up getting things like sodium, glucose, oxygen crossing out into the tissues in that space. Now on the other side of the capillary, when you have the venous side, here your hydrostatic pressure has dropped drastically. Instead, it's more the osmotic pressure that has an influence on the venous side. The osmotic pressure in the blood at this point is higher than the hydrostatic pressure at this point. The osmotic pressure on the outside of the vessel in the interstitial fluid space 
is pretty low. So fluid is going to want to go in. This is why I said when you are talking about hydrostatic pressure, hydrostatic pressure pushes out, whereas osmotic pressure pulls in. And so this can kind of give you an idea of why things are moving the way that they are and how an imbalance of one of these things in this system could cause a shift in fluid. Now let's talk about what happens when you do get a shift in fluid that leads to too much fluid present in the tissue space. So there are four different reasons that you might have a fluid excess or edema in the tissues. One of them is just elevated hydrostatic pressure. And hopefully this makes sense. This is a high blood pressure. So here, the filtration pressure is higher, and so it is going to push excess water out, or excess fluid out. And the fluid can't return to the capillary very easily because the pressure inside is so high. Now, if you had low osmotic pressure, this might be because you had a loss of plasma proteins, for example. One really common one is albumin. And albumin is a big part of providing that colloid oncotic pressure or osmotic pressure. So here, if you lose the plasma proteins or albumin that's normally inside the vessel, now you're going to have a decrease in the capillary osmotic pressure. That means that that force that is normally pulling fluid in can no longer do so because you don't have enough plasma proteins to exert an osmotic pressure. So fluid naturally will leave. More water than normal ends up leaving and water is not pulled back into the capillary because at this point, the osmotic pressure is actually higher on this side than it is within the vessel itself. Now, a couple of reasons that this might happen, for example, you can lose proteins through the kidney when you have kidney disease. You also can have a decrease in synthesis of proteins. And this could be because of liver damage. We'll talk about that later on. This could be nutritional. Either you are not taking in enough protein or you have an inability to absorb the protein that you are taking in in your diet. For example, some um, gastrointestinal abnormality that's leading to malabsorption or malnutrition, um, maldigestion that's not allowing you to absorb what you are taking in. And there are some other less common reasons for this. For example, burns. Excessive burns damage the skin, which normally keeps in some of our fluid. And so with that, you lose protein just through the surface area of the body. You can also have something similar here when you have excess sodium, but I'm not gonna worry too much about that. We're gonna worry more about plasma proteins here as a primary reason. Now, the other possibility is lymphatic obstruction. So you've got these blood vessels whose primary role then is to bring fluid out to the tissues. But we sometimes forget there's gotta be a way in addition to the vessels 
for excess fluid to get back into the circulation. And one of those is the lymphatic system, which kind of runs parallel to most of our blood vessels. This is one of the ways we absorb excess tissue fluid. But if for some reason in a specific area, you have a blockage of a lymphatic capillary, let's say a tumor, for example, or what if the, the lymph nodes in this area were removed, for example, because of breast cancer or checking for another type of cancer, they remove some lymph nodes, then that normal process of getting excess tissue fluid through the lymphatic system and dumped back into the capillaries or um, your, your normal blood system, then you're going to have a buildup of protein and water in the interstitial space. So that's one possibility. And again, here you might have malignancy or removal of lymph nodes that somehow obstruct the lymphatic system. And then one that we're going to talk about quite extensively this next um, lecture is increased capillary permeability. This is a pretty fancy way to say something relatively simple. And that most common reason for this is inflammation. One of the things we're going to talk about in the inflammation lecture is that when inflammation is occurring, you have various chemicals that are released that cause a vasodilation, which kind of separates the cells that line the blood vessel and leaves a space between them. It makes it really easy for fluid to exit and you're getting a lot more fluid coming across than is typic, typical of a normal capillary exchange. And so we'll talk more about that coming up. Now, what if the opposite happens? What if it's dehydration? So I mentioned before that there are some, some really um, at-risk populations. This issue with dehydration is that you can start a chain reaction that once you start to reduce fluid, your body may end up trying to compensate by increasing heart rate, your blood pressure could drop, and then some of the things that your body does to try to compensate for that could actually end up making the situation worse. Now, there is sort of a grading system for dehydration compared to the percent of body weight. There is a mild, moderate, or severe grading of dehydration. And this can really only be determined if you know the normal or recent um, weight of the individual. So then you would compare that if they all of a sudden weigh certain pounds less, then that will tell you to what severity their dehydration is. So if they have lost 2% of their body weight, then that would be a mild dehydration. If they have lost 5% of their body weight, that would be moderate. And if they lose 8% of their body weight, then that would be a severe dehydration. Now, I mentioned um, toward the beginning because there's different percentages of water in the system for different populations. Infants and elderly individuals have a much harder time adjusting. They have a smaller fluid reserve and less adaptability. Now for infants, their adaptability is because they can't physically go get a glass of water. 
they are dependent on someone to provide them with fluids. And so if they are dehydrated and it is not noticed by a caregiver or not realized by a caregiver, then they have no ability to adapt to that. Older adults, they naturally have a lowered, a lowered thirst mechanism. And because their skin gets a little bit thinner as they age, they also don't have a good way to adapt and conserve fluids in the same way that we do by capillary vasoconstriction. Um, so here they are much more at risk, partly because they have a different um, reserve of fluid, but also a different ability to adapt. Now, another issue that comes in for some of these specifically, for example, is that infants have a much higher metabolic rate. And so they will use water more quickly than somebody who is older. And something else that affects the older adult population specifically is that the kidneys are less efficient at conservation. In other words, they can't concentrate their urine as well as they used to, which means they're not going to reabsorb water as readily. They're going to urinate more out than they should be based on their body's hydration state. So these are some potential issues that can come up. In fact, dehydration can be quite serious in infants and elderly when they are ill, particularly if no one notices or is able to compensate and help them to compensate for that. Now, what might cause fluid loss that leads to dehydration other than just not drinking enough? Well, some of these can be a disease state. Some of them can just be um, sort of a result of behavior. Now, there are some terms that describe the type of fluid that is lost because, as I mentioned before, some of the electrolytes are very closely related to fluids. So if you were to lose more electrolytes than water, it is called a hypotonic dehydration. If you lose a proportionate amount, in other words, sort of equal amounts of electrolytes and water, it is called an isotonic dehydration. But if you lose more fluid than electrolytes, it is called a hypertonic dehydration. And many times the only way you can truly figure this out is based on lab results. And the book does go into a pretty good description of how you might figure some of that out. Now these are some of the reasons that dehydration could occur. Vomiting and diarrhea are potential ways that you might lose too much fluid that may or may not contain a lot of electrolytes. For the most part with vomiting and diarrhea, you are going to, to have an imbalance of electrolytes. Now, once somebody is able to stop vomiting or have more firm stools so that they're not losing as much fluid, then they're usually able to, if they're taking in some electrolyte-rich fluids, replace things themselves. In severe cases of vomiting and diarrhea, they may need intravenous um, fluids and electrolytes in order to make sure that they are not going into a severe dehydration state. If they can't keep it in um, orally, then they need to have it put in intravenously. Now, excessive sweating is a possibility here, and this is where you can get some electrolyte imbalance because you might then have some sodium lost as well as that fluid.
something we'll discuss more later on in the semester is something called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. Something that can happen in those who are diabetic is if they are not aware of a high glucose level in the blood, the kidneys lose their ability to reabsorb that. And when they urinate out a lot of glucose, water follows it trying to dilute it out. And so they urinate quite frequently large amounts of urine and that causes them to become dehydrated. And eventually they end up using um, fats for energy because they can't use glucose and they produce ketones. So that's where this term comes into play. We'll talk more about that later on in the semester. It is possible that someone just does not take in enough water. It could be that they've lost their thirst mechanism. It could be that it's just situational. They um, were in a place where they didn't have access to water or in a situation that didn't have fresh water available. Or there's the possibility of taking in too much of a fluid that is highly concentrated with electrolytes. And in that case, it's going to be a relative um, increase in water, I'm sorry, decrease in water because of the increase in electrolytes. Now, what does this all mean? If someone has edema or dehydration, how might you know it? Well, some cases you might not have an easy um, observable way to know. In some cases, it depends on the situation that's leading to it. So for example, if it's in an isolated location, you might be able to actually see the swelling. And the swelling could be significant enough to cause pitting. And that's what you see here in this photograph, where somebody could actually use their fingers to um, touch the swollen area and it doesn't rebound quickly. It leaves indentations in the tissue. You could also potentially determine that from body weight, that they would have an increase in their body weight, and you would have to know their normal body weight in order to determine that. Now, in some cases, you might not know that edema is occurring if it's in a location that is not visible to the naked eye. For example, if you had edema in the lungs, you might experience a functional impairment. In other words, you can't breathe very well. Um, if you had swelling in the brain, for example, or the central nervous system, you would see functional changes in the ability to reason or move certain body parts, depending on which part of the brain is mostly infected. You might have pain. You might have a circulatory impairment. And in cases like this, you can have some skin breakdown because this um, swelling makes the skin a little bit thinner. And so it's more susceptible to injury um, if you were to damage that area. Now dehydration is sort of obvious if you're the person. You would probably, you know, describe that you're thirsty. You would have dry mucous membranes. You would have a dry mouth. But if that person is not able to communicate, um, so it's a, a child or an elderly person or somebody who's unconscious, you might have to use other methods to determine that. One of the things you can look for is what's called skin tinting. Um, and you get a decrease in the skin turgor, which is the ability of the skin to like, be elastic and bounce back to its normal um, shape. And that's what you see in this picture here. If you are to pinch the skin a little bit, it sort of stays in that pinched shape as opposed to spreading back out to its normal shape. If you were to take some, um, some of your um, 
blood pressure, temperature, all of those things, your vitals, you might see a difference in blood pressure, a lower blood pressure because of a lower blood volume. You might have weak pulses. You might notice that someone has fatigue and confusion because this is how it affects the nervous system and the brain. If you were to do a blood test, you might see what's called an increased hematocrit. And hematocrit measures the percent of blood, specifically the cells, relative to fluid or plasma. So what it would show is that you have a higher percentage of cells because the total blood volume is lower. And that'll come up again at the end of this, um, um, in a couple more weeks when we start talking about the other pathophysiology of the hematologic system. You would also, again, looking at vitals, see an increased heart rate and pale, cool skin. Your kidneys would try to conserve by um, reabsorbing as much water as possible, meaning there would be a smaller volume of urine produced. And this is all part of your body trying to compensate for that. So if your body is noticing that you have a lowered blood pressure and that the pulses become weak, it tries to compensate by increasing the heart rate. If you have a low blood volume, the heart rate increasing would sort of make an attempt to get more blood out to the system in that way. Now, that's if we had edema or dehydration. What if we have an imbalance of various electrolytes? And many of these are closely related to fluid imbalances. Now, sodium is the primary cation in the extracellular fluid. Remember, cation means it has a positive charge. And this is in the space outside of the cells, extracellular fluid. This may be part of osmotic pressure in addition to albumin and other plasma proteins because it is 90% of the solutes that are present in the extracellular fluid. But occasionally you will have issues where you don't have enough of it. Now it's possible that you could directly lose sodium or because sodium and water are so closely related, it could be instead that you haven't really lost any sodium, but you have gained an excess of water, which puts that balance out of play. This could be because you have had excessive sweating. That would be a direct loss of sodium. Vomiting or diarrhea also cause a loss of sodium. Now, diuretics will end up causing you to urinate out some of that water, and then you typically are on a diuretic because you have high blood pressure and are put on a low salt diet in order to reduce blood pressure. And so those two going together can sometimes lead to a low overall sodium content in the blood. It's also possible that we'll talk later on in the semester about a hormonal imbalance. And one of those I mentioned is ADH. We'll talk about aldosterone some of these other um, endocrine type connections to your fluid and electrolyte balance. In chronic renal failure, you're no longer really able to regulate those electrolytes and water well, or again, a relative excess of water, so excessive water intake, sort of water poisoning, um, if you will. Well, what does this do? We know that several different electrolytes are really important for both nerve conduction and muscle contraction. In fact, several of the things we're going to talk about here, sodium, potassium, calcium, are a really important part of that process. 
So your nerve conduction is impaired. What will occur is you'll have fatigue, muscle cramps. Some of those are abdominal muscle cramps and you could have some nausea and vomiting sometimes. You will have a decrease in the blood pressure and that's mainly due to a low blood volume. When you, don't, when you have the low sodium, you will also tend to have a low fluid. And this also affects the brain by producing confusion. What if the opposite happens? What if you have hypernatremia? It could be that you have too much sodium in the diet or the opposite, not enough water or a loss of water. This could be because you don't have enough ADH, that antidiuretic hormone. You could have lost the thirst mechanism as part of a hypothalamus or had a GI condition that produced a very liquidy diarrhea. Or something that we don't often think about is how you end up losing water when you are breathing. It's something, it's called insensible fluid loss, something we don't even see or think about when we're losing fluid. And that's because you do exhale some water as part of the air that you breathe out of the lungs. And so very prolonged rapid respiration could cause you to give off more water, but the sodium is not part of that, and that leads to a buildup of sodium. Now this also has some similar muscle and nerve issues because they're all part of that um, process of stimulating nerves and muscle contractions. Here it's weakness and agitation, and you will get, because of that, um, potential fluid accumulating in that interstitial space is very firm subcutaneous tissue. Your body will react by trying to get you to drink to dilute out that excess sodium, but at the same time then you will have dry mucous membranes and you will try to conserve water to balance out that extra sodium by making less urine. What if we have a potassium imbalance? This, rather than being the major extracellular cation, this is the major intracellular cation. Remember, those are positively charged ions. Now, these are very closely related to acid-base balance. In fact, if acidosis occurs, it will naturally move potassium out of the cells. And then if alkalosis is occurring in the body, it will move potassium into the cells which means you're going to have a change of the concentration of potassium in the bloodstream itself. Now, sometimes it's hard to measure potassium levels adequately because the majority of it is present inside the cell, not in the blood itself, diluted in your plasma. Um, but when you are getting it moving out because of acidosis, you can then see an increase in that in the bloodstream. Hypokalemia, not having enough potassium, is often caused again by diarrhea. Certain diuretics, we'll talk about this later on in the renal lecture, when diuretics are prescribed, they naturally tend to cause you to lose potassium, except there is one that is sometimes given as a supplement called a potassium sparing diuretic, whose job is to make sure you don't lose too much potassium if you're on a diuretic. It's also possible that because of hormone changes, that you could end up with not enough potassium. And here, it's usually if you have an imbalance in aldosterone and other glucocorticoids, like in Cushing's, which we'll talk about later in the endocrine lecture. You could have an inadequate dietary intake 
of potassium. Normally, one of the big places you can get that is bananas and other fruits. And it's also possible that because of the relationship to acidosis, remember this is diabetic ketoacidosis, that when you administer insulin to try to treat diabetic ketoacidosis, that you'll cause a change in the amount of potassium in the bloodstream. This again, very important electrolyte that influences both nerve conduction and muscle contraction. So when you have an imbalance here, you're going to see cardiac dysrhythmias, a weakness in neuromuscular function, paresthesias, which is more like a pins and needles feeling in your tissues or nerves, decreased digestive motility, your body, and this is often kind of related to the relationship between acid-base balance, a shallow breathing, and in some cases you will end up having changes to renal function in very severe cases because of that relationship with the renal system, which is part of how you regulate some of these electrolytes. One of the things that ends up causing hyperkalemia on the same note is renal failure. Here, it's an aldosterone deficit that leads to too much potassium. Certain diuretics that are meant to keep you from losing potassium could end up making you accumulate too much. And then if you have some sort of injury or burn that ruptures cells, then you will release those intracellular cations out into the bloodstream causing hyperkalemia. And acidosis then is another reason you might have elevated potassium. Now here, again, because of that close relationship to nerve conduction and muscle contraction, you're going to also have cardiac dysrhythmias and muscle weakness, fatigue, nausea. So some of those signs and symptoms or effects are quite similar between the two. And so doing blood tests in order to sort it out is going to be necessary. What about calcium? This is an extracellular cation, but just to give you some information, again, kind of connecting back to previous courses you may have had, the major extracellular cation we talked about previously was sodium. Ca calcium has a double positive charge as opposed to sodium, which only has a single positive charge. It is heavily influenced by the relationship between parathyroid hormone, or PTH, and the bones, the kidneys, and the GI system. Because we regulate calcium by storing it in the bones, reabsorbing it in the kidneys or excreting it when necessary and absorbing it from the diet in the GI system. And that's all vitamin D dependent, which you make in the skin. So there's a close relationship to vitamin D as well. There's also an influence of calcitonin. As I said, vitamin D and this is important to realize, there is a reciprocal relationship with phosphate. So even if you don't have a particular problem with calcium, if you have a problem with phosphate for whatever reason, it will affect the calcium levels in the opposite way. So if phosphate is low, calcium will be high. 
is phosphate is high, calcium will be low. So just remember that they're reciprocal. So let's talk about low amounts, hypocalcemia. This could be because you don't have enough of that PTH hormone. Low PTH occurs in hypoparathyroidism. Again, we'll talk about this in the endocrine lecture. It could be that you can't absorb calcium in your GI tract. It's called malabsorption. You could have low serum albumin, which is related to how we transport calcium. There is an ionized version of calcium and one that is bound to protein. Alkalosis, renal failure, and this is again because of phosphate. In this case, you have high levels of phosphate in the system because they cannot get out from the kidneys and renal failure, and then that will make it so that calcium ends up being low. Now, what happens here in terms of the effects is, again, nerve and muscle related. Here, with low calcium, the skeletal nerves are excitable. In fact, you're going to have um, what's called tetany, or hyper-excitable um, contractions of the skeletal muscles. And you will get a couple specific terms that can be used to describe muscle tremors or contractions that occur in certain places that can help you determine that this is actually occurring. One of those is called Jvostek's sign. This is when you get lip or face spasms when the face is tapped with the fingers in front of the ear. In Trousseau's sign, this is where you get involuntary finger contraction when a blood pressure cuff blocks circulation to the hand. So if you put on a blood pressure cuff on the arm and um, inflate it so that you're blocking that circulation, you will then get this involuntary finger contraction. That can also tell you that there is some tetany going on that's likely related to hypocalcemia. Now something you won't necessarily be able to see but will be occurring is that the contractions of the heart become weaker and you may develop arrhythmias. Now what if the opposite occurs? Hypercalcemia could happen because you are leaching too much calcium into the bloodstream from the bones. One of the reasons that could be is a bone tumor that's destroying the tissue and releasing calcium into the bloodstream. It could be that you have too much parathyroid hormone. And remember the job of parathyroid hormone is to regulate calcium. So if you have too much of it, you're going to have too much calcium as well. It's also possible that you're just not maintaining your bone density because you're not active enough. So immobility, so somebody maybe who is in a coma, somebody who is paralyzed, they will begin to have demineralization of bone because they're just not putting that pressure on the bone in order to maintain that breakdown and simultaneous regrowth of bone tissue. It could be that you're just taking in too much um, calcium. In fact, there's a term called milk alkali syndrome that occurs when you take in too much milk and too many, too many antacids.
What's interesting about this is you're going to see, again, similar issues with nerve and muscle contraction, but here, rather than excitable skeletal nerves, you're going to see skeletal muscle weakness. You'll have lethargy, cognitive changes, anorexia, nausea, and here, because you have some interplay of ADH, you will begin to produce too much urine. Remember, there is this connection between the bones, the kidneys, and the GI system. Rather than weak cardiac contractions, you have stronger cardiac contractions. And if you think about the relationship with the bones, if the calcium is being leached into the bloodstream, you're going to have a decrease here in bone density because calcium is now coming out and going into the bone or going into the bloodstream. So hopefully this makes sense to you. These are all very closely related to nerve and muscle um, contractions. So hopefully those causes and effects make a lot more sense. Now there are some other electrolytes that I'm really not going to worry too much about. They're not at their, while they can be problems, they're not as predominant as the previous three that I just discussed, but just for completeness sake, I have included them here with a brief description of hypo and hyper causes for them. But I'm not really going to ask that you know these. Um, they're just here to give you the information. Let's talk about acid-base balance. Now, this has always been something that's kind of fascinated me because it's really quite amazing what a narrow, narrow range your body is kept in, in terms of the pH range. Now, hopefully you remember that with a pH system, it goes from about one to 14, and right around seven is neutral. But the lower numbers are the numbers representing acidic substances, and those that are higher numbers represent alkaline substances. So the normal range for our pH is between 7.35 and 7.45. That's a very narrow range, a tenth of a point of pH in the bloodstream. And this is not that easy to maintain if you think about the fact that as part of the Krebs cycle in our normal metabolism, we are constantly, constantly producing acid as a byproduct of that metabolism. And in fact, you may have even more acids being produced if you produce a lot of lactic acid from exercise or you have a condition that leads to excess acids like keto acids if you're diabetic. So there are multiple things that your body has to do to try to both control and then also compensate for these changes in pH in order to really keep it within this range as much as possible. There are three main ways that your body does this. One is called buffer pairs. Now, if you've taken chemistry, this should sound familiar. Buffer pairs are these relationships between a weak acid and an alkaline salt. So there are four different buffer pairs that your body uses, but I'm really only gonna go over one example. The primary one is the sodium bicarb carbonic acid system. There's also a phosphate system, hemoglobin is used, and proteins are also used as part of a buffer pair. 
But just to give you sort of an idea of what this looks like, think about what is produced in your body as part of the Krebs cycle. Your natural waste products as part of your metabolism are CO2 and water. Now, if you combine these two things, it turns into H2CO3. So putting those together, this is your positive ion, right? And then this actually combines with that O and you get H2CO3. This is called carbonic acid. That immediately can disassociate into a hydrogen ion and something that's called bicarb. HCO3 negative. So here, this is our weak acid and alkaline salt buffer pair system. And what's really kind of cool about this is it plays right into these next two parts of how our body controls and compensates for changes in pH. One thing that you can do if the pH begins to get too low, in other words, acidic, is you can engage the respiratory system by lowering CO2. So here is your relationship with the lungs on this side of the system. You can breathe out CO2, which will mean there'll be less carbonic acid present in order to go back and forth. Or the other possibility is you involve, on this side, the kidneys. And there are multiple ways that your kidneys can do this. The kidneys can combine bicarb with other things like sodium. And this combination is a salt that can now be excreted in the urine which also then will decrease the carbonic acid that's present. So you have an ability to increase your respiratory rate, which will blow off more CO2, or get rid of some of those acids in your urine through the kidneys, which will decrease the amount of bicarb that's present. Now the opposite could happen as well. If you need to, you could retain more bicarb if you're in an alkaline situation so that you generate more carbonic acid to bring the pH back up to where you need it to be. Or you could lower the respiratory rate in order to retain more carbon dioxide and then create more carbonic acid to make that pH in that range that we need to keep it. So this is kind of an image that describes that. If you start up here, cell metabolism produces acids. You get other acids, um, you also get CO2 and water, which those combined become carbonic acid. You can break those apart then into a hydrogen ion and bicarb in the buffer system. It's possible then that your kidneys get rid of acids. They can also then modify the amount of bicarb that's present. And here again, you can also change how the lungs are assisting the buffer pair system by breathing off CO2. So that in the end, in both cases, you end up with either less carbonic acid present 
or less hydrogen and more bicarb. So this all is a closely related system that can help maintain that pH exactly where you need to be. So what happens if it's not able to maintain that or it's not compensating or going through that system well enough? You would either have acidosis, so this is when the pH is low, lower than the normal range, or alkalosis when the pH is higher than the normal range. In addition to describing it as either acidosis or alkalosis, we can also describe that as to whether the lungs are involved in it or the other system like the kidneys or regular metabolism is involved in this. So respiratory acidosis, for example, primarily occurs when you have increased carbon dioxide. And this hopefully makes sense to you too, because if you have increased carbon dioxide, go back to that equation, if you increase this, you will then also, in that next step, get an increase in carbonic acid. And that will then cause an acidosis. Now, if it's not because of carbon dioxide, it's possible on the other end of this equation instead that we just don't have enough bicarb around. A decrease in bicarb would mean here that because bicarb is alkaline that you would have an excess of acid as a result of this. Normally that's going to neutralize this and cause you to have an adequate amount then of carbonic acid. So a decrease in bicarb would be a metabolic acidosis. Let's look at the flip side. Rather than an increase in carbon dioxide, a decrease in carbon dioxide would cause a respiratory alkalosis. Again, decreasing this would mean that you would have a decrease in this, which would be alkaline rather than acidic. A metabolic alkalosis would be here that you have an increase in bicarb. And remember, bicarb is alkaline rather than acidic. So that would lead to a metabolic alkalosis. Now let's go through a couple of the reasons that this might happen and what it causes. So in an acidosis, and you can sort of separate this here, this would be if you had a respiratory acidosis, that would, this would be if it was a metabolic acidosis. Many of your respiratory forms of acidosis are due to respiratory problems. Acute respiratory problems like pneumonia, some sort of chest injury, something that is going to change that amount of CO2. And COPD is one of the chronic reasons that you might have that increase in CO2 when you normally would be able to expire that CO2 and exchange that for oxygen. So here you're retaining CO2 because of, and that's going to cause then a respiratory acidosis. Now, remember that the opposite was true. If we, again, look back here, if we had a um, metabolic acidosis, it was a decrease in bicarb. One of the ways then that you would get a decrease in bicarb is that you are getting rid of it through diarrhea or relatively low bicarb because of an increase in acids. 
Lactic acidosis or diabetic ketoacidosis will cause an increase in acids present that have nothing to do with the respiratory system. But the respiratory system ends up being what tries to compensate for that increase in acids that are around. Now, renal disease that affects your ability to get rid of acids will also cause an acidosis. Here, headache, lethargy, weakness, mental confusion, and in severe cases, coma and death can possibly occur. And the main compensation here is going to be deep, rapid breathing or respiratory compensation. In alkalosis, it's kind of going to be the opposite. So here you have a low CO2. This again is respiratory on this section, and this is the metabolic side. So for respiratory alkalosis, hyperventilation is one potential reason why you get um, a lowered CO2 value. By lowering CO2, you lower carbonic acid, and that will mean lower acid is higher alkalosis. This could be because of um, anxiety, rapid breathing that occurs with fever, a head injury that affects respiration, or for metabolic reasons, you lose acid for some reason. You could have a loss of hydrochloric acid, maybe excessive vomiting. You could have hypokalemia. Remember that some of those electrolytes are very, very closely related to acid-base balance. Or you could just be taking in something that is neutralizing acids that are present, such as taking too many antacids. Now here again, the effects, muscle twitching, tingling num numbness, paresthesias, seizures and potentially a coma. And the way that your body tries to compensate here is renal. It will try to um, limit the excretion of acids and try to change that pH by not getting rid of the typical amount of acids that we're used to getting rid of because of our normal metabolism. So that's the end of the information on fluid electrolytes and acid-base balances. If you have any questions at all, please let me know.